I must hit the diamond exactly at the point indicated, with exactly the right force, or I'll doom the Justice League to a terrible fate. I'm Eddie Webb, and today we're going to talk about Justice League of America Volume 1, Issues 4, 5, 6, and 8, here on Speechless. Welcome to season two of Speechless, which is one more season than I thought I was going to do originally. <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, I did Speechless initially because I just, Hawkeye had just uh, appeared on Disney Plus, and I really, really wanted to talk about the Matt Fraction run of Hawkeye. Uh, and so Chris was nice enough to give me some space to kind of actually talk about that. And I knew it was going to be just me goobing, so it's like, you know, I'll just record it solo. Uh, but... Um, some people have actually been very, very polite online, um, saying that they really enjoyed it. Chris himself also said that he really enjoyed it. So, uh, he also then called me out on the darker hue discord and it's like, Hey, so you should do a season two and you should do DC now. And initially I was like, I don't know what I would do with that, but, um, got kind of my history. I talked about this a little bit in, in speechless season one, but uh, I was a Marvel kid growing up. I, I mainly read Marvel comics. Uh, and I bought into the kind of fandom dichotomy, right? Of like, I like Marvel, I don't like hate DC. Uh, uh, I actually did read some DC when I was growing up, but uh, I, I do think a lot of that was mostly the licensed comics I read, uh, the Dungeons & Dragons comic, I read Star Trek comics. Uh, so I didn't really read the superhero DC stuff when I was growing up. But then... Batman 89, the movie came out in 89, and then Batman animated series, and so everyone was a Batman fan at that point. Uh, but even then, I was like, I like the animated universe. Um, I watched Batman, I watched uh, Batman Robin, I watched Justice League Unlimited, I watched you know, all that. Um, I was a fan of all that, but I didn't really read the comics. I just liked the, the television and movie output. And uh, But over the decades, I, I've been giving bits and pieces of, of DC comics. And I reached a point where I realized that I actually knew a fair bit about DC comics. Uh, so it's like, okay, I, I have to acknowledge that I am somewhat of a DC fan. So um, I had recently actually picked up uh, a subscription to DC Infinite, and uh, which is their streaming service. And originally I skipped it because I didn't like it as much. It was also had the, the video stuff bundled in, and it was just kind of a mess initially as a service from my outside perspective. Uh, but over the years, it's become a really, really fantastic service. Uh, and so I, I've been reading through a bunch of stuff, and I realized that I'm actually a much bigger fan of DC Comics in general than I thought was, even though I don't know as much about them as I do about Marvel. Uh, so when Chris gave me this uh, ultimatum, suggestion, I'm not sure what to call it, uh, but he gave his idea. Let's go with that. Uh, I, 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 immediately, I thought the logical counterpoint would have been Green Arrow, because Green Arrow was the character that inspired the creation of Hawkeye. Because originally, you know, Green Arrow was a hero, and then Hawkeye was originally created, as I talked about in season one, as a villain. So it was kind of a counterpoint to that. And then Hawkeye evolved into a hero. But I didn't really know much about Green Arrow. And, I mean, my, my knowledge really kind of began and ended with the Arrow TV show. Because, again, I was a fan of the, the TV output of DC. Um, but even when I watched Arrow, I had made jokes at the time of, like, CW clearly can't afford the Batman license. So they're going to get, you know, 
the, the, the knockoff version of Batman. And really, from an outside perspective, Green Arrow looks like Zack Lang. He's a rich guy with lots of technological stuff. He doesn't have any superpowers. He fights crime on his off hours. There's a lot of overlap in the Venn diagram between Bruce Wayne and Oliver Queen, if you will. Uh, so, uh, but I was like, hey, I have this service. I can use this as an opportunity to kind of learn about Green Arrow. So this format of this show is going to be very different from uh, the original. The first one was I specifically dug into a meteor run of one comic and talked about it. This is going to be a lot more like the uh, uh, the, the main show, genreless, where I'm going to be cherry-picking bits and pieces to kind of show an arc, although I'm using a character as opposed to a genre as the pin for them. Uh, and a peak kind of uh, behind the curtain uh, is that um, I'm also recording these because uh, uh, Chris and I's schedules sometimes don't always line up. Sometimes they get really busy. Uh, and we realized as we move to weekly that um, we're going to run to points where it's going to be hard for us to, to record. We're at a point as I'm talking now where we've got a good backlog, but that may disappear. So I'm also recording these as kind of what you would call like a fill-in issue for a comic perspective. These are episodes that we can just drop in if we need to buy ourselves some time. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to be very kind of uh, uh, vague about our references, but I, I, I don't think DC Infinite's going to go away anytime soon. I keep going DC Unlimited because I'm thinking Marvel Unlimited. It's DC Infinite. Um, but I mean, I may reference comics being missing that by the time you listen to this man should be available or vice versa. Uh, so I'll, so I'll, try to, I'll try to stay within... Elaine, I am hoping that these things are going to be evergreen enough that they'll still be around for you to read easily and I'm talking about them. Uh, so I looked, I started researching the, the history of Green Arrow. Um, and uh, Green Arrow uh, started in more fun comics in 1941 uh, and then moved to uh, adventure comics. And those are... Uh, Anthology comics. Uh, so back in the 40s and 50s, a lot of comics were done anthology style, where rather than having an entire physical magazine issue devoted to a particular character or team or whatever, instead you would have several features. And initially, not all of them were even superheroes. Superheroes like one of the offerings that you're going to get like a funny animal comic, you make it a Western, you make it a, a sci-fi. Uh, and then they would all be bundled together into one issue um, because the the comic magazines of the 40s were an outgrowth of the newspaper strips. They were literally originally just reprinted newspaper strips. And so the idea was, okay, then we can do like an eight-page story and then uh, put that in whatever comic space is coming up. So uh, they would do all sorts of different comics and bundle them together. And then certain features would get more popular than others, so they would get featured more. And... Uh, particularly in the 60s, some of those backup features became starring features. Eventually, they became the whole magazine. Uh, so, for example, that's why uh, you, you can't find any issues labeled Thor, Marvel issues labeled Thor before like issue 100, is because uh, um, Thor was actually a journey into mystery, and then Thor's backup strip eventually became the main strip, and then the title changed to become Thor, but the numbering didn't change. So, uh, um, this, this is kind of, and it's not like, well, let's start looking at uh, these initial kind of comics. Uh, comicsology doesn't have anything. I mean, it does have some of them adventure comics, not any of the more fun comics that I could find. Uh, 
So um, I actually couldn't find any of the early, early, early Green Arrow stuff to look at. Uh, but um, he also, from what I've been reading, wasn't actually really popular until the late 1960s. Uh, so we're not missing a ton here. Uh, but um, according to my research, uh, he was created by uh, Mort Weisinger. And uh, he was very obviously, there, there he's drawing from uh, Robin Hood, uh, but also apparently was inspired by a movie serial called The Green Archer, uh, which is based on a novel by Edgar Wallace. Uh, so he retooled that into being a superhero archer. And uh, the Batman influences I was seeing in the CW show were very much intentional, apparently. Uh, because not only stuff I mentioned, uh, but in his initial incarnation, uh, there was a sidekick named Speedy, just like uh, Robin. There was an arrow car. There was an arrow plane. He had an arrow cave, uh, which, again, was kind of mentioned in the Arrow TV show. He had an alter ego as a wealthy playboy. There apparently was an arrow signal to summon him, and he even had a clown-like arch foe named Bullseye, uh, similar to the Joker. So... Uh, very much meant to be a Batman analog because Batman was popular in the 40s and 50s. But I couldn't get any of those uh, issues. And I think in retrospect, it's fine because I'm not a fan of, of Golden Age stuff. And actually, uh, we didn't really talk about this, Jason, so let me kind of step back. Um, when comics history is discussed, uh, it is often lumped into at least three stages, often four or more, and they are muddy as hell, but you will still, people have reference them constantly. Uh, there's the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and the Modern Age, and then from there it gets muddy. Uh, there's no consensus, but generally the Golden Age is uh, 40s and 50s. Silver Age is uh, late 50s through the early 70s. Uh, Bronze Age is mid-70s through the 80s, and then Modern Age is 90s and on. Um, which means that you have some fairly specific subdivisions and then just a huge whopping chunk of who the fuck knows. I tend to prefer decades uh, for my chronology because aside from the 40s and 50s, who, they are kind of muddled together because there was superhero was still forming as a distinct genre of storytelling. Um, but other than that, every decade does have its own kind of distinctive flavor and vibe. Uh, and so that's how I'm going to actually pace this show. Each episode is going to be trying to find a representative Green Arrow story from a decade and, and so I can talk about it. And so I couldn't find anything from the 40s and 50s, uh, as I mentioned. Uh, so the earliest best representation I could find was the actual Justice League of America comic. This was the very first comic title, Justice League of America, Volume 1. Um, and uh, these issues all came out in 1961. So it, it, it's very good in the sense of this is right as comics had become its own kind of distinct medium, uh, DC was becoming a uh, well-known and, and popular publisher of comics. And we're right at the time where Marvel starting to come out with their counterpoint. So um, we're going to see kind of the kinds of comics that Marvel was specifically trying to tailor themselves to be an antidote to. Uh, and uh, all of these issues 
are, are going to be written by Gardner Fox, penciled by Mike Sikowski, inked by Bernard Satch, and uh, edited by Julie Swartz. Uh, and also, um, big thanks to the DC Fandom Wiki for all this information. So let's kind of dive in, and I'll, I'll talk some more as we go on. So first is uh, issue four of the Doom of the Star Diamonds. And the synopsis, returning from a mission from space, Carthen of Dryana learns that his ruler Xandor wishes to exile him, because as the planet's greatest hero, Carthen may lead a revolt to usurp Xandor's command. Unable to kill Carthen because of a protective aura around him, Xandor exiles Carthen to Earth. Knowing of the Justice League, Carthen is unable to contact them telepathically. However, he believes he can trick them into helping him stop Xandor if he pretends to be evil. As the JLA considers who will be the next superhero inducted into their ranks, Carthen sends an arrow with a message telling them of ultra weapons, which will destroy the Earth if the Justice League does not stop them. The JLA decides to split up into groups and tackle the problem head on. Martin, Martian Manhunter and Wonder Woman seek the first doomsday weapon in Keystone City and have to battle giant insects, animals, birds, and cats that have been mutated by the weapon. Defeating their attackers, they succeed in switching off the device using its invisible handle. Flash and Aquaman race to Australia, where they have to search for the device with the help of Aquaman's undersea friends. After locating the device, the Flash's super counter vibrations allow Aquaman to get close enough to the machine to disable it by using its control lever. Coral is made from the skeletons of marine creatures. Oh, that's a note to myself. I'll get to that in a second. Um, and finally, Green Lantern tackles the last device located near Italy, battling movie prop aliens brought alive by the last machine protected by their yellow coloring. He uses his power ring to create petrified wood around them before shutting off the machine. While this is going on, Superman and Batman have located Carthen's ship, and the two heroes board and find the green arrow is Carthen's prisoner. Also, Carthen has captured the other JLA members and imprisoned them in a giant crystal. However, before Carthen can explain the situation, Superman, Batman, and Green Arrow attack, damaging the device that can free the other members in the crystal. Using a diamond-tipped arrow, Green Arrow manages to destroy the diamond prison that is holding the other heroes by firing at the crystal's stress point. After hearing Carthen's story, JLA offers to aid him in overthrowing Xandor. However, Carthen declines, stating that it is his own fight. Returning to their headquarters, JLA votes in Green Arrow as their newest member. So um, going through the issue itself, um, uh, you'll see, if you're not familiar with uh, 60s comics, um, it's a very busy cover. Uh, there's the um, there's a, a thought balloon on the cover as Green Arrow is firing his uh, diamond-tipped arrow at the, um, the, the, the crystal that trapped him. Um, we see at the bottom right, uh, you know, here's a story you've been waiting for. Green Arrow joins the Justice League of America in Doom of the Star Diamonds. There's just all sorts of text on, on the cover uh, and also completely spoils him joining it. Well, it was not really a spoiler, so I'll explain in a second. Um, and then there's the uh, approved by the Comics Code Authority. The Comics Code Authority was a self-governing body created by comic book publishers uh, in the wake of uh, some scandals as some uh, Politicians were trying to claim that comic books were actually corrupting uh, American youth. And so they imposed a certain amount of restrictions, things they could and could not talk about. Uh, and this actually destroyed some comic book publishers, most notably uh, EC Comics, who were well-known for their horror comics, uh, and really reduced the amount of things that could be portrayed in other comic books. And led to the rise of superhero tropes, we know them now, like things like the good guy always wins over the bad guy, um, where uh, toned down violence, all of this kind of perceptions we have of this, this era of comic books stems directly from the Comics Code Authority. 
Uh, but anyway, I mentioned that um, it wasn't really a spoiler because um, the first page actually has a whole half of the section is basically their um, uh, a, a document saying that you know Green Arrow is actually membership for life in the Justice League of America. So I mean, we see immediately he's going to join. Uh, so this wasn't really uh, a plot point or a character twist. It was the reason to read the comic. You're reading the comic to see how this character joins. Um, and this is something that is, you'll see throughout all of his comics is Silver Age, 60s era DC comics were really, really plot driven. Uh, and again, it stems from the format, right? Um, they're originally just eight, 12 page comics. So you didn't have a lot of time for character development. So you get in, you set up the scenario, you go through a scenario, you win the day, wrap it up and you're done. You're out. That's, that's, and then 12 pages is half the size of a comic now. And those are considered to be long stories. So when you start writing in this mode, even if you get more and more pages, uh, you, you will start to continue to kind of write in this vein. And uh, one thing, if you're reading this comic uh, digitally, um, you'll notice that there are different chapters in this. Uh, you'll see chapter two, chapter three. Uh, and if you look, the chapters occur four, five, six, seven, just double checking. Yeah, um, about every seven or eight pages. Uh, again, that was the, the structure was if, if you started to have connected stories, if, if these eight-page slots had the continuing story, then you would just label them as chapters. And over time, even though the whole book was the same team, this conceit of each section being chaptered was kept. Uh, if you, again, look at contemporaries, uh, Marvel comics like uh, Fantastic Four at the time, for a few issues, they also kept the chapter structure because that was just how comics were structured. And it's like it's around 62 that I think both companies eventually dropped this structure. But so we're seeing the tail end of this so-called golden age structure happening here. Um, another thing you'll notice as you uh, go through is uh, a very tight what's called grid structure. Um, now, as you look at comics, uh, uh, there are all sorts of ways to portray the action on the page, uh, but here. Because again, this has evolved from newspaper strips. You still have square boxes that are structured in a very specific way. Uh, so if you uh, skip past the first page, go to page two, you have uh, a long panel followed by a, a long panel underneath it, a third long panel underneath it, and then three skinny panels underneath that. And it makes it very clear to read. Even though it's not uh, uh, just box, 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 the box sizes change to in introduce variety, but they're all very square. They're all specifically square. And they're all structured and stacked in a very clear order. Uh, so if you go through the whole thing, um, you're never lost. If you're leading, reading left, right, top to bottom, you're never lost into the flow of the story. And also uh, the word balloons generally fall that way. Uh, but also, um, again, I can see from the newspaper strips, uh, heavy narration boxes. Uh, now captions are primarily used for internal thoughts. And I'll talk, you'll see more of that as we go later on in this run, I'm sure. Uh, but right now, captions are specifically reserved for narration and they're pretty heavy. Uh, uh, you s there's not a page on here that doesn't have some sort of caption box. And many of them will have caption boxes for every single panel. This is the norm. This is common. Uh, so um, we have a few pages setting up the, the conceits. Uh, then we have um, 
to JLA sitting around a table uh, uh, to figure out who they want to inject him. Um, the Justice League was meant to be kind of an explicit fraternal organization. So they had, uh, they have, uh, not laws, um, they have rules of order, they have a table, they have regular meetings. It, it, it's structured like an actual organization, not just a bunch of superheroes that hang out and do stuff. Um, you'll also see uh, Snapper Carr. He's the ubiquitous teenage person with no power that hangs out with the team. Uh, Rick Jones was the equivalent for the Avengers and the Hulk. Um, he, he's bare primarily for comic relief and to go, wow, gee willikers, um, occasionally get captured, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, but um, you also see another trope in here, which is specific to this era of DC of splitting up a team where a, a big event happens and this is where the chapter structure kind of works well in the sense of each chapter is ultimately a, a section of the team, usually two people, who go off and solve their portion of the problem. And Gardner Fox really zeroed in this formula. Uh, Julius Wartz also kind of really pushed this formula. Uh, so a lot of the Justice League comics, even before Justice League got their own comic book, um, this was the structure is First chapter, you learn what the problem is. Next few chapters, a section of the team handles a portion of the problem. End of the chapter, this problem is resolved. And this is going to be just that just boom, boom, boom is how you do it. Uh, the idea that you could have the whole team address the problem at the first or, or, or just not have portions of the team around, um, that wasn't as prevalent. There were certainly issues where... Um, um, certain members of the team just aren't available, usually because they're doing something else in their own comic book. Um, but otherwise, having like all six or seven members just attack the problem wasn't really how it was done. It was, it was, it was an artificial structure. The other thing, uh, which I kind of mentioned uh, inadvertently as in my recap, um, is uh, during the Aquaman chapter in chapter three, uh, he mentions that uh, coral is made from the skeletons of marine creatures. That is not true. Uh, similarly, in chapter four, um, there is actually a footnote that says petrified wood is caused by minerals replacing the woody structure of trees or sawdust with quartz, which is partially true uh, because um, quartz is one of the things that could cause petrified wood, but is not the main thing, not even the most common thing that causes petrified wood. Uh, but what we're seeing here is this very 50s, 60s obsession with science. And this is one of the reasons why uh, DC got around a lot of the concerns of comic books is because they could point to those things and say, we are educating people. Science is a huge portion of superhero plots and structures at this time. It's not good science because the people writing these comics don't necessarily understand the science they're implementing. But this science solves will solve all of our problems is very much in the zeitgeist of the United States. And it bleeds into these comics. So it's it's one part we're ostensibly educating the youth badly. And another part of this is, you know, we could put a man on the moon. I mean, at this point in time, space races is hot. Uh, so I mean, you know. Science as 
the way that the U.S. will progress and science is a way to better the world as a whole. Science is a utopic ideal is a very strong component of 60s era comic books, Silver Age comic books. Uh, so um, uh, the other thing that is a common trope, I'll say, of comics this era is just nonsense logic. You have to really be in the mindset for the goofiness of this era. It's not intentionally goofy. Um, Gardner Fox is writing this stuff to be sincere, but also it's Superman will have powers that are just made up for the situation. Uh, uh, Green arrow just happens to have a diamonds tip arrow to break his friends out of a giant crystal prison, because of course that's a thing you prepare for, right? Um, Batman will often have uh, whatever gadget is appropriate. You will see these tropes. Uh, if you watch the Batman live action show around 66, uh, the Adam West show, that's just at the point where people are recognizing these tropes are a little goofy. And the Batman show is riding that line between making fun of the comics and genuinely representing them. There's one of the reasons why I think that show generally holds up is because it's, 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 playing it straight but the audience is in on the joke um with these comics we're still at the no these are presented as straightforward adventure comics but they just don't make a lick of sense like um uh green arrow it's a green arrow why is he here oh he was basically captured in one he tells his story which is like basically two panels of how he got captured and that's instruction to the team is like i got captured um, and he was captured uh, flying his aeroplane, aero car, sorry, aero car. I got the vehicles wrong. Um, and then he gets in there and he's able to cause them to escape. Uh, so um, not a great start for Ollie Queen there. Uh, anyway, uh, it got into issue five when gravity went wild. Convinced that the Green Arrow has betrayed the Justice League one case after being inducted into them for life. Uh, because he's been helping his foes while while the rest of the team work on their cases together. So GLA puts the Green Arrow on trial to answer their claims, uh, with Batman, Superman, and the teenager Snapper Carr acting as judges. The other JLA members explain the situation. Monty Moran, known as the Getaway Mastermind, devised a way for himself and his fellow prisoners, Captain Cold, the Clock King, although here he's listed as King Clock, Professor Menace, Electric Man, and the Puppet Master to escape from jail. Shrinking down in size and escaping in a miniature Zeppelin, the group of criminals vow to destroy the Justice League. Upon hearing about the cursed escape, Wonder Woman, Flash, and Green Arrow team up to capture three of the escaped criminals, while Martin, Martian Manhunter, Aquaman, and Green Lantern set out to capture the other three. Tracking down Clock King, Captain Cold, and Professor Menace, the first trio tries to stop them. However, Green Arrow fires exploding arrows that stop Flash and Wonder Woman from capturing them. While later, when Getaway Master and Puppet Master were tracked down by Aquaman, Martian Manhunter, and Green Lantern, the trio was also stopped capturing these crooks by Green Arrow's intervention. With everything told, Green Arrow reveals that he was using the arrows to save everyone's lives because of various traps, and explained that one amongst them is an imposter, and that he kept silent so now so he could lead them into a trap. When Green Lantern is revealed to be Dr. Destiny in disguise, the group tries to capture him, but he uses a special anti-gravity device to defeat the JLA and take them prisoner. Taking them to his base, the group is saved by the real Green Lantern who manages to free himself. So, um, again, not... I talked about how these are kind of plot-driven. This is another great example is because the character you introduced last issue is now 
immediately distrusted. And it's all to service this plot setup. It's like, okay, who is the only superhero that could plausibly be distrusted by the rest of JLA? Well, it's Green Arrow. Um, and let's show how he's actually secretly was a good guy all along. It's not a, it's not a subtle plot. And again, it dives in kind of in media res. I mean, to, to, to the um, comics credit, uh, it, it does play with narrative structure a bit here. But um, it's, it's not a great way to sell this kind of brand new character to the team is by making him seem, I think the logic was uh, kids aren't going to believe that he's actually a, a villain. So they're, they're going to read this to see what the excuse is, right? So it's the, I know he's innocent. So how do we get to that? Uh, which is a good argument, but um, from a modern perspective, this is still, a relatively new character. This is a character who's been around for 20 years, but has not sold well. He still hasn't really had his own book that's done really well. Uh, so they're trying to give this character more cachet by putting him in a team with other better selling characters. And it just, it, it's, it's an odd choice, put it that way. But again, it, it's the idea of let's, let's, we're not worried about the character. What is the cool plot? And this character serves that cool plot. Um, so, uh, uh, one thing, a couple things to note is, uh, we do see, I mentioned before the kind of tight grid structure, uh, we do see, um, some playing with that, uh, at, at one point, um, when Martian Manager's recapping his portion of the story, we actually see uh, a panel, but there's no hard, uh, box around it. It's just kind of floating in space with just his head and some text. And then the panel where he starts his flashback is kind of all the lines are actually wavy. So we're starting to see some, some toying with that structure. Um, and then uh, as it goes on, we see that the tops of the panels are squared, but the bottoms are rounded, uh, which is a way to kind of sell this is not quite the the progression of events that you would normally expect from a tight grid. Uh, but I mean, it's <laughs> on some level, if you can't get on board with a supervillain who used bits and pieces around jail to build a shrinking raid to allow his friends to escape on a miniature Zeppelin using a matchbox, I mean, you're either into this or not. Um, <clears throat> I admit silver age stuff's not always my cup of tea, but I do appreciate the bald face bonkers nature of it. Like it is just unapologetically, this is the concept and you're on the train or you're not. <laughs> you know? I, I, I respect it, even if I don't always enjoy reading it as a, as, you know, for fun. Uh, um, so some other kind of uh, points, um, again, like the beginning of each of the, the recaps, we have kind of, uh, wavy panels, although they're inconsistent in how they're drawn. Um, sometimes it's always wavy. Sometimes you have the kind of scooped bottoms. Uh, so it's a little inconsistent in, in visual language, but it's still clear. I mean, you know what's going on from moment to moment. Um, it helps. The, this is one place where chapter structure actually helps because each, in this case, each chapter is a different JLA team's or pair's portion of the recap. But again, we have the same structure. We set up the, the thing. Um, which is Green Lanterns Betrayed People, and then each recap is ultimately one of the chapters. 
Uh, um, so uh, I think that's pretty much all I want to say. Um, we don't learn much about uh, Green Arrow at this time, uh, except for that he realized it was a trap all along. I mean, so so we're starting to see a bit of the master planner, I guess. Um, not quite detective, but still strong Batman vibes on a team where there's already a Batman. Uh, so I mean, it's 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 an interesting uh, choice. Uh, you're also getting a little bit of the sense, at least I mean a little sense that Oliver Queen kind of plays by his own rules. Uh, he does, he's not gelling with the team and it's something that the team actually does, does call him out on. It's like, why have you kept this a secret until now? At one point, uh, Wonder Woman makes that question. Uh, so, um, uh, the idea that he will just make his own decisions and, and do his own thing is something you can kind of glean from this a little bit, but again, because it's so plot heavy, you can't tell if this is intentional characterization or if it's just that's the sort of plot. Uh, one piece to note, which I find interesting, uh, is uh, on page twenty-one, uh, right before the beginning of chapter five, um, when Green Arrow is revealing that uh, the Green Lantern is actually an imposter. You do see there are arrows drawn on each of the panels uh, to the, from the top to the bottom, and then the final arrow points towards a big long panel on the side. Um, so I mentioned before that you see, you see some playing with structure in this issue, um, but you're also seeing here they're not entirely sure that readers will understand some of the new flow. So they're actually training them on how to read the structure because if you do top bottom left to right, you would read the first panel, you would read the long panels to the right of it, and then the rest of the other panels next to it, which would be, if that's how you were trained, that would be a logical way of flowing that. But in fact, you, you, you follow the stacked panels first and then the one next to it. Um, this is interesting because as comics have evolved, they've started to just assume that people will know how to read them. But when you have these more flavorful panel layouts, it can actually be hard for people who have never been trained, quote unquote, on how to read comics uh, to the point where there actually are books on how to read comics now. Uh, so it's it's interesting that there was a stage of like they were unsure, so they added in visual aids to to help show that flow, uh, which is largely gone. But I think some modern comics could actually benefit with some way of, of indicating, hey, this is how you read the comic, especially for people who uh, are dyslexic or otherwise struggle have struggled with reading disorders. Uh, one thing I also want to mention, if you look at the very end, the very last page, you'll notice that there's a huge Justice League of America logo at the bottom half of the page. Uh, that's because um, right around this time, uh, the magazines, because these are magazines, right? They just, and they still sold ad space like magazines. Uh, but a lot of comics now, if you do buy physical comics, if they even have ads in them, frankly, that's that's even going away. But uh, they're always full page ads. This is a stage where half page ads were actually still being sold. Um, there was an era where half page ads were being sold, but they would just be both stacked on a full page. Uh, but the art would actually be designed in a way to have the bottom half free so they could put in an ad at the bottom half of that page. And in and, and some issues, you'll see more of that than less. Uh, so um, the artist actually had to account for, we're going to put an ad at the bottom here. Interesting little touch. Uh, anyway, 
Uh, let's go to issue six. Uh, this is the Wheel of Misfortune. As various members of the Justice League perform various super feats before a public audience, each hero has to face a different superstition, which apparently comes true and causes them to have a bit of bad luck. Witnessing each event is Amos Fortune, who has spent the better part of his life studying luck and how to manipulate to his own ends. Having discovered that luck can be manipulated biologically through the quote-unquote luck gland, Fortune has created the Stimuluck device to this end. Having succeeded in this test of these devices on the Justice League, Fortune is confident enough to cash in his vengeance. While at the Justice League headquarters, the heroes join for their regular meeting where they all discuss their recent bouts with bad luck. With no desire threats presently at large, the group decides to answer some mail requesting for the League's assistance. Green Arrow, Martian Manhunter, and Flash decide to help a girl who's searching for a hidden family treasure, the only clue to his location being a riddle-based poem. Meanwhile, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, and Green Lantern go to the town of Sand Dune to investigate reports of an invisible thief. Green Arrow, Manhunter, and Flash arrive at the girl's home and begin searching her property for the hidden treasure. While they're doing so, Amos Fortune arrives and purchases fence posts on the property, which reveal to have treasure in it. However, since the Fortune just bought the posts, he claims the treasure is his own. The girl is devastated. However, the heroes reveal that while looking for the treasure, they also found a priceless painting, as well as a fortune in oil and uranium on the property. Which is amazing. Uh, leaving Fortune is puzzled by the Justice League members who are able to have extraordinary good luck in finding these unknown treasures. Meanwhile, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, and Green Lantern investigate the Invisible Thief's handiwork. A castle full of priceless artifacts has been stolen as of late, so the League has been hired to try and catch the culprit. Using his power ring to coat the remaining items in the castle, Green Lantern makes it so that he is alerted if any of the items are stolen. When they are later, the GLA goes to find the thief is actually a master fisherman who has been casting his line into the castle to grab items. When brought to the secret location when the golden stolen goods were hidden, they arrive just as Fortune has finished putting them in the trunk of his car. Fortune uses a gas to knock them out, hoping to take them to his lair and find out how they've been able to be so lucky when he's used his device to ruin their luck. Captured into the League members as well, Fortune attaches them to his Wheel of Misfortune, a device which will eventually burn out their good luck glands, giving them nothing but bad luck. However, Martian Manhunter breaks free and defeats Fortune. When the shocked Fortune inquires to how the Manhunter was able to break free, Jean explains that his Martian physiology makes him immune to the stimuluck and that his recent battle with Fortune was sheer coincidence. So when I talked about bonkers nonsense plots, this is Apex example of that. I mean, there are biological luck glands, both good luck glands and bad luck glands. We have a stimuluck device, and we have the fact that these heroes are all falling prey to actual human superstitions, even though one of them is from Atlantis and one of them is from an island that does not interfere with the realm of man. Whatever. Um... Visually, there's some interesting stuff happening here. Like I mentioned before that uh, chapters were used to kind of delineate different uh, chunks of the story. At the beginning, each of the heroes is doing kind of like a little stunt at the beginning. Uh, but each of those gets a single page. And so each page, like the first page is Aquaman's uh, confrontation with Lux. Second page is Wonder Woman's. The third page is The Flash's. The fourth page is Green Arrow's. So it's a nice way of showing all of these, but they're all given their own kind of distinct page. So the page gets to hold together that, that scenario. It's a good use of the physical medium of the comic book to kind of delineate breaks in scenes because it's, it's the, once I turn a page, there's a kind of a mental pause as you turn a page 
and it's a good time to do a scene transition. In fact, if you look at almost all comic pacing, scenes will inevitably change on a page turn. Uh, so that that's an intentional design of comics writing and comics layout. And this is actually a really good example of how to use that to your benefit. Again, tons of uh, boxes. In fact, Wonder Woman's box, every single I should get flashes too. Uh, every single panel has uh, a caption box, which is just a whole lot. Um, I think it is noteworthy to point out that during this issue, uh, Green Arrow uses a parachute arrow, uh, a metalla finder arrow, which finds uranium, uh, and explosive arrows. So the explosive arrows are actually the most mundane arrow <laughs> of the options here. Uh, but again, this is peak. Um, you know, uh, whatever power is needed is kind of comes about. Um, so what's interesting is some of the superstitions in play uh, is um, the Aquaman one is kind of vague. It's just the, the jewel he's trying to recover is cursed and then he gets bad luck. So it's like the, the vaguest. Uh, but um, Wonder Woman has a black cat across her path. Um, uh, Flash runs in front of a broken mirror. Uh, Green Arrows uh, is uh, walking under a ladder. Um, and uh, uh, Green Lanterns is... I just don't remember which one Green Lanterns is. Uh, oh, yeah, Salt. Um, salt is building it, throwing it over his shoulder. Weirdly, uh, uh, March Managers is... It's unlikely to break a spider web, which I actually never heard that one before. So I don't know if that suspicion has fallen out of favor. Or I just I've never come across it. Uh, but that one was an interesting one. Um, I haven't talked about Green Lantern yet. Uh, uh, I'll talk about it more next issue, and you'll find out why next issue. But um, DC compared to Marvel, there was an interesting dichotomy uh, when you have something like. Uh, Superman and Green Arrow characters who do pretty much anything. Uh, they were also given very clear weaknesses. Now, Superman's was ludicrous because it was given the weakness of this radiated bit from my home planet causes me to become weak. But then everyone in the world had kryptonite constantly. Um, so uh, Green Arrow's was the color yellow and inevitably something in the scene will become yellow to cause Green Arrow to not be able to use, or sorry, Green Lantern not be able to use his powering. Uh, so one, I, I, while it's a ludicrous limitation, it makes no logical sense. Uh, but it is interesting from a visual standpoint because it allowed the coloring of the comic to dictate weakness. Uh, so um, when uh, Green Arrow is... Uh, he's trying to actually deal with a, a migratory flock of yellow warblers. Um, and so they're painted just flat bright yellow. And that's probably not how those birds are colored, but it is an interesting visual cue to the reader. Like, oh, okay, so I see something yellow on the page. I know that's something that Green Lantern can't affect. It's, an, it's, it's a way of showing, not telling, that the comics will probably also tell you because that's just how these comics are written, but it, it is a neat visual weakness that a lot of other characters don't necessarily have. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, this is just 
I don't even want to go through it because it's just so much nonsense. We see more of the ad breaks I talked about in this issue, actually. Um, but uh, uh, again, we have peak green arrow of like, he has these arrows that shooting into the yard to try to find veins of metal. And it's like, listen, a metal detector would be so much easier to use. There's no reason to use arrows. The only reason you're using arrows is because that's your shtick. That, 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 that's your gimmick. Um, and later on, uh, when Professor Fortune has his Wheel of Fortune, uh, he even says that he built this thing kind of out of vanity. There's no reason to have a giant spinning wheel in your laboratory unless you were planning to capture supervillains. Um, but you know, even the comics like, uh, I just did it because I thought it was cool. It, it's again, it's a certain kind of uh, aesthetic that I think you need to really either have been involved in at the time or can really appreciate the, the, the kitschiness of it. Uh, um, let me go to the last issue. Cause I, cause I, I think there's a good error for this. I don't think this is quite it. I respect Gardner Fox. Gardner Fox is not my style, but let's go into um, issue eight for sale of justice league. And I've talked more about that. So, while fleeing the police, common crook Peter Ricketts manages to escape when he trips over a device that causes those who are exposed to trace to the bidding of the device's holder. Seeing the potential for such a weapon, Ricketts uses the weapon to capture Justice League members Aquaman, Flash, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Martian Manhunter, and Wonder Woman. Ricketts then meets up with a number of high-powered criminals and sells off the Justice League services for their criminal game. To make things interesting, the criminals send two JLA members to collect the same items to see which one will be able to make it first. And so Green Lantern and Flash sent to steal the Napoleonic Tiara, Aquaman and Green Arrow to collect the money from a gambling ship, and Wonder Woman and Marshmaster to steal uranium from a science lab. While this is going on, Snapper Carter checks the JLA's mail and finds a letter from a professor, Caleb West, who invented the device and is seeking the Justice League's aid and retrieving it. When the League signal goes off, Snapper decides to find out what's going on, taking Dr. Destiny's anti-gravity disc from issue 5 so he can travel around faster and find his comrades. While at each location, two pairs of heroes who would vie for the intended loot would battle each other. But when the fight is over, they'd find that what they had come to steal was nowhere to be found. Returning to the crooks empty handed, the crooks then decide to kill the JLA members. However, they suddenly break free, the JLA members, I should say, suddenly break free from their traps and round everybody up. Snapper appears with the device in hand and reveals how he managed to foil the criminal's plots. He was able to find the Justice League members because while each member is commanded not to use their call signal to summon for help, they were not told they couldn't use another JLA member's communicator. This allowed Snapper to find each member and be able to move the loot away to prevent it from being stolen. Then it was a matter of following JLA back to the criminal's hideout, steal the device, and use it to free his friends. Again, nonsense. It's fun nonsense. Don't get me wrong, but it's nonsense. Uh, so, uh, some of the things that actually I do want to kind of point out about this issue. Uh, I mentioned that... Uh, Snapper car use something from previous issue. A lot of DC comics of this era were really meant to be one. Comics in general, I should say, were really meant to be one done. Sometimes you even get a couple of issues or a couple of stories in the same issue. Um, again, when those anthology st uh, stories went 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 tend to overtake it, uh, there was a weird period where occasionally, like you'd have say. Um, uh, uh, not Aquaman. Um, 
you have a character like Captain America, say, um, and they would have actually two stories to fill both of those slots inside of, of the anthology issue. Uh, so the idea was no one, no one really knew what issue they were going to get. You were primarily buying these off of newsstands. You were not subscribing to comics much at this stage. We were just ready to move into a subscription era. So you might get issue one, you might get issue two, you might get issue five. Um, it's whatever issues the newsstand could get and whatever issues they could put out and sell. So you wanted each issue to be relatively contained because also it was still believed this time that comics were disposable. You would read it, you would maybe give it to your friends or you'd throw it away. It was like the newspaper, you know, you don't keep, you generally keep newspapers. So the idea was you don't want to have a lot of continuity between issues. But they did recognize that there were very, um, as they started to get letters in and people started to become interested in these things, that there were people who actually were following a specific magazine throughout. And so they'd start to make nods and references towards continuity. Uh, but again, we're not quite to the collector age yet. So see, it's one thing to say, we're not introduced new character named Green Arrow, and then Green Arrow will be a member of the team going on. That's that's continuity in a, in a larger sense, um, and that's not as big of a deal. It's like okay, well, this guy wasn't part of the team; he is now. Whatever uh, uh, the team changed, not a big deal. But referencing a specific plot element from a previous issue relevant to this issue, it's interesting because it's not necessary if. You know, Snapper could have just said, okay, I found this thing in the trophy room and I used it. It could have just been a generic anti-gravity disc. It doesn't have to be Dr. Destiny's anti-gravity disc. Uh, and the story works just fine, even if you hadn't read that issue. So there's still that self-contained approach. But it is almost like an, uh, an Easter egg reference to people who have been reading the comic continuously. And in this case, four issues, five, three issues is pretty continuously for this era. Um, so we're starting to see the integration of uh, con uh, interconnectivity between issues and the implication that reading other issues and trying to find those issues to learn more of the story might be desirable. This will hit peak in comics uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, actually, I would argue the 90s, especially for like things like the X-Men, it becomes too much. Um, but we're starting to see that era of continuity is itself an interesting thing and something that people might desire. Uh, but also, you know, a guy literally trips over the plot device in panel two of page one <laughs> and then the plot starts and then afterwards, oh yeah, this other guy invented it, I guess, and lost it somehow in an alley because you just leave your weapons lying around in alleys. It's, again, you're either on the train or you're not. It, it, it's, it's just kind of the, how this is. Um, again, I would be remiss in mentioning that uh, Green Arrow in this uses a tear gas arrow, a suction arrow, and my favorite, a reverse rocket arrow, because rockets can be reversed somehow. Why Oliver Queen's like, you know what, you know what I really need? In case I run into a rocket, I should really have an arrow that helps me to make sure I can reverse that rocket. That's what I need. Uh, I mean, otherwise, I don't really have much to say uh, about this issue. Um, it, it it's the the other trope of the teenage sidekick of they also conveniently are the person who can solve everything because they're they're overlooked. But 
how he does this and how he manages uh, the anti-grav disc is really vague and really kind of badly written. And the we have... Uh, in, in mystery novels, I swear I'm going with more of this. In mystery novels, you have the idea of playing fair, right? Which is that uh, you put all the clues in the story, and if the reader is as smart as the detective, they could theoretically come to the same conclusions as the detective because they have all the information the detective has and therefore could have drawn those conclusions. And if they don't, they recognize, oh, well, I could have come to that conclusion. I didn't. That's on me. That is the, the kind of gamification, if you will, of mystery design. Um, this does not play fair because we never saw anywhere in those breakdowns that the JLA were using Judge Communicator. It was absolutely just the end. We had no clue of knowing that. And so we read these things, and then suddenly Snapper Car is like, "Oh, hey, uh, I'm, I'm getting note from the. I'm getting these weird messages from the JLA, and it looks like it's a plot hole. And it turns out it's not, but it's it's really not explained well. Uh, so." Uh, I talked about kind of where there's a uh, clearly I'm, I'm I'm not a fan of these and, and I mean uh, I enjoyed them I mean they were they were fun to read for that respect uh, but I don't want to like read any more of these it, it, it's not an era that that I particularly gravitate to because again it's so plot heavy um, weirdly a part of this era that I enjoy is just chronologically after this. Um, uh, is the uh, specifically the Brave and the Bold. There are other kind of example issues, but uh, the Brave and the Bold, when it becomes the Batman teams up with a uh, another character book, um, they're written primarily by Bob Haney. It's from like 68 until the early 70s. And Bob Haney, much like these comics, just does not care about continuity. He's like, I don't care what you're doing with this character or another thing. I think this character's cool. I'm using it in my own way. And Batman does not act like the 70s era Batman. He, he acts like Adam West. Um, and so when you're watching Adam West on TV and you're trying to find a comic that reflects that, you're probably reading Brave and the Bold, Bob Haney's Batman. But they're bonkers in a way that the writer seems to be in on the joke. Again, we're starting to see it's almost satirical. It's not funny. But it's the the characters are somewhat acknowledging the fact that this is ludicrous, but we just have to get through it. And Batman ends up being a perfect character to do that because he's a relatively straight-laced character, so he's a good foil for these increasingly implausible scenarios. Uh, so um, I have enjoyed reading. I actually have a, a compiled volume of some of the Brave and the Bold issues, uh, and so they're, they're genuinely pretty fun. I debated doing those instead of these, but um, these are good because they're, they're a good snapshot. Um, they are right before uh, the major competitor Marvel starts to change how comics are written, frankly. Uh, it's a good show, the last gasp of golden era or peak silver age, depending on how you want to slice things. Uh, and we can kind of see how green era evolves from there. Cause frankly, from this, I learned more from the Wikipedia write-up of Green Arrow from the 40s and 50s than I got from the actual issues here. We don't know. I don't even know his name, Oliver Queen. Uh, that's something I, I just I know from osmosis, but like I, his name he's just Green Arrow throughout. Granted, all of the characters are all referred to by their superhero names. It's not about character building. It's about doing interesting action-adventure stuff. Um, this is also peak weird trick Arrow. 
era of a uh, green arrow. Um, they're, 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 I mean, I, I was kind of hoping to see the boxing glove arrow because it's almost like a, a, a standby of this weird era of trick arrows. But the point is they're just bonkers trick arrows, like things like tear gas arrow and explosive arrow. Those kind of stick around even suction arrows to a degree come and go, uh, at least from the Hawkeye run. Um, but Hawkeye never got this bonkers with his arrows. This is definitely, I have exactly the arrow for this thing. Like I mentioned before, it's just like Batman's toady belt. It, 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 it doesn't make sense. So if you're into just kind of the, the almost surreal nature of these stories, they can be a lot of fun. I don't want to dismiss that, but it's definitely not my cup of tea. And uh, from this point on, hopefully we'll be learning more about Oliver Queen. Uh, so kind of how I'm doing this is uh, the, the areas I've picked, I've done from researching online, but I'm going to read them as I record the episodes. I will say that the next episode um, I know about because I have read a, a combination of these. Uh, so the next issue is going to be the 70s, um, and it's going to cover actually Green Lantern 78, 81, 85, 86, and 87 because – Around this time, uh, Green Arrow actually joins the book, and we're going to get a lot better look at who Oliver Queen is as a character. So, next time, we're going to go right to the 1970s, Green Lantern, 78, 81, 85, 86, and 87. And I will see you then. <laughs>